Chapter Nine, Part One of Once a Week. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Once a Week by A. A. Milne. Chapter Nine: The Men Who Succeed, Part One. The Air. Mister Trevor Pilkington of the well-known firm of Trevor Pilkington fixed his horn spectacles carefully upon his nose, took a pinch of snuff, sneezed twice, gave his papers a preliminary rustle looked slowly round the crowded room, and began to read the will. Through forty years of will-reading his method of procedure had always been the same. But Jack Summers, who was sharing an ottoman with two of the outdoor servants, thought that Mr. Pilkington's mannerisms were designed specially to annoy him, and he could scarcely control his impatience. Yet no one ever had less to hope from the reading of a will than Jack. For the first twenty years of his life his parents had brought him up to believe that his cousin Cecil was heir to his uncle Alfred's enormous fortune, and for the subsequent ten years his cousin Cecil had brought his uncle Alfred up in the same belief. Indeed, Cecil had even roughed out one or two wills for signature, and had offered to help his uncle, who, however, preferred to do these things by himself, to hold the pen. Jack could not help feeling glad that his cousin was not there to parade his approaching triumph. A nasty cold, caught a week previously in attending his uncle to the Lord Mayor's show, had kept Cecil in bed. To the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, ten shillings and sixpence. The words came to him in a meaningless drone. To the Fresh Air Fund, ten shillings and sixpence. To the King Edward Hospital Fund, ten shillings and sixpence. Was all the money going in charities? To my nephew Cecil Lindley, who has taken such care of me, Mr. Pilkington hesitated. Four shillings and ninepence. To my nephew John Summers, whom, thank heaven, I have never seen, five million pounds. A long whistle of astonishment came from the ottoman. The solicitor looked up with a frown. "'It's the surprise,' apologized Jack. "'I hardly expected so much. I thought that that brute—I mean, I thought my cousin Cecil had nobbled—that is to say— was getting it all. The late Mr. Alfred made three wills, said the lawyer in a moment of expansion. In the first he left his nephew, Cecil, a legacy of one shilling and tenpence, in the second he bequeathed him a sum of three shillings and tuppence, and in the last he set aside the amount of four shillings and ninepence. The evidence seems to show that your cousin was rapidly rising in his uncle's estimation. You, on the other hand, have always been a legatee to the amount of five million pounds but in the last will there is a trifling condition attached. He resumed his papers. To my nephew, John Summers, five million pounds, on condition that, within one year from the date of my death, he marries Mary Huggins, the daughter of my old friend, now deceased, William Huggins. Jack Summers rose proudly from his end of the ottoman. Thanks, he said curtly. That tears it. It's very kind of the old gentleman, but I prefer to choose a wife for myself. He bowed to the company and strode from the room. It was a cloudless August day. In the shadow of the great elms that fringed the Sussex Lane a girl sat musing. On its side in the grass at her feet a bicycle, its back wheel deflated. She sat on the grassy bank with her hat in her lap, quite content to wait until the first passer-by with a repairing outfit in his pocket should offer to help her. "'Can I be of any assistance?' said a manly voice, suddenly waking her from her reverie. She turned with a start. The owner of the voice was dressed in a stylish knickerbocker suit. His eyes were blue, his face was tanned, his hair was curly, and he was at least six foot tall. 
so much she noticed at a glance my bicycle she said punctured in a minute he was on his knees beside the machine a rapid examination convinced him that she had not overstated the truth and he whipped from his pocket the repairing outfit without which he never travelled i can do it in a moment he said at least if you can just help me a little as she knelt beside him he could not fail to be aware of her wonderful beauty the repairs somehow took longer than he thought their heads were very close together all the time and indeed on one occasion came violently into contact there he said at last getting up and barking his shin against the pedal Conf that will be all right thank you she said tenderly he looked at her without disguising his admiration a tall straight figure in the sunlight its right shin rubbing itself vigorously against its left calf it's absurd he said at last i feel as if i've known you for years and anyway i'm certain i've seen you before somewhere did you ever go to the seaside girl she asked eagerly often do you remember the spanish princess who came on at the beginning of the second act and said wow wow to the mayor why of course and you had your photograph in the sketch the tattler the bystander and the sporting and dramatic all in the same week the girl nodded happily yes i'm marie huguenot she said and i'm jack summers so now we know each other he took her hand marie he said ever since i have mended your bicycle i mean ever since i have known you i have loved you will you marry me jack she cooed you did say jack didn't you bless you marie we shall be very poor dear will you mind not with you jack at least not if you mean what i mean by very poor two thousand a year yes that's about what i meant jack took her in his arms and mary huggins can go and marry the pope he said with a smile with a look of alarm in her eyes she pushed him suddenly away from her there was a crash as his foot went through the front wheel of the bicycle mary huggins she cried yes i was left a fortune on condition that i married a person called mary huggins absurd as though how much oh quite a lot if it wasn't for these confounded death duties five million pounds you see jack jack cried the girl don't you understand i am mary huggins he looked at her in amazement you said your name was marie huguenot he said slowly my stage name dear naturally i couldn't i mean one must you know how particular managers are when father died and i had to go on the stage for a living marie my darling mary rose and picked up her bicycle the air had gone out of the back wheel again and there were four spokes broken but she did not heed it you must write to your lawyer to-night she said won't he be surprised but being a great reader of the magazines he wasn't the statesman on a certain night in the middle of the season all london was gathered in lady marchpane's drawing-room all london that is which was worth knowing a qualification which accounted for the absence of several million people who had never heard of lady marchpane in one corner of the room an ambassador with a few ribbons across his chest could have been seen chatting to the latest american duchess in another corner one of our largest advertisers was exchanging epigrams with a titled newspaper proprietor famous generals rubbed shoulders with post-impressionist artists financiers whispered sweet nothings to breeders of prize palms even an actor-manager might have been seen accepting an apology from a royalty who had jostled him 
"'Hello,' said Algy Lascelles, catching sight of the dignified figure of Rupert Meryton in the crowd. "'How's William?' A rare smile lit up Rupert's distinguished features. He was undersecretary for invasion affairs, and William was Algy's pleasant way of referring to the bill which he was now piloting through the House of Commons. It was a measure for doing something or other by means of a, what do you call it, I cannot be more precise without precipitating a European conflict. "'I think we shall get it through,' said Rupert calmly. "'Lady Marchpane was talking about it just now. She's rather interested, you know.' Rupert's lips closed about his mouth in a firm line. He looked over Algy's head into the crowd. "'Oh,' he said coldly. It was barely ten years ago that young Meryton, just down from Oxford, had startled the political world by capturing the important seat of Cricklewood East for the Terrafaticals, as, to avoid plunging the country into civil war, I must call them. This was at a by-election, and the Liberatives had immediately dissolved, only to come into power after the general election with an increased majority. Through the years that followed, Rupert Meryton, by his pertinacity in asking the invasion secretary questions which had been answered by him on the previous day, and by his regard for the dignity of the House, as shown in his invariable comment, come come not quite the gentleman upon any display of bad manners opposite established a clear right to a post in the subsequent terrifatical government he had now been under-secretary for two years and in this bill his real first chance had come oh there you are mr meryton said a voice come and talk to me a moment with a nod to a couple of archbishops lady marchpane led the way to a little gallery whither the crowd had not penetrated Priceless Correggios, Tintorettos, and G. K. Chestertons hung upon the walls, but it was not to show him these that she had come. Dropping into a wonderful old Chippendale chair, she motioned him to a Blundell maple opposite her, and looked at him with a curious smile. "'Well,' she said, "'what about the bill?' Rupert's lips closed about his mouth in a firm line. He was rather good at this. Folding his arms, he gazed steadily into Lady Marchpane's still beautiful eyes. "'It will go through,' he said. "'Through all its stages,' he added professionally. "'It must not go through,' said Lady Marchpane gently. Rupert could not repress a start, but he was master of himself again in a moment. "'I cannot add anything to my previous statement,' he said. "'If it goes through,' began Lady Marchpane. "'I must refer you,' said Rupert, "'to my answer of yesterday.' "'Come, come, Mr. Meryton, what is the good of fencing with me? You know the position, or shall I state it for you again?' "'I cannot believe you are serious.' "'I am perfectly serious. There are reasons, financial reasons, and others, why I do not want this bill to pass. In return for my silence upon a certain matter, you are going to prevent it passing. You know to what I refer. On the fourth of May last—' "'Stop!' cried Rupert hoarsely. "'On the fourth of May last—' Lady Marchpane went on relentlessly, you and I, in the absence of my husband abroad, had tea together at an A.B.C. Rupert covered his face with his hands. I am no fonder of scandal than you are, but if you do not meet my wishes, I shall certainly confess the truth to Marchpane. You will be ruined, too, said Rupert. My husband will forgive me and take me back. She paused significantly. Will Marjorie Hale? Rupert covered his hands with his face. Will the good Miss Hale forgive you? She is very strict, is she not? And rich, and rising young politicians want money more than scandal. She raised her head suddenly at the sound of footsteps. Ah, Archbishop, I was just calling Mr. Meryton's attention to this wonderful Botticelli— 
She looked at it more closely. This wonderful Dana Gibson! A beautiful piece of work, is it not? The intruders passed on to the supper-room, and they were alone again. "'What am I to do?' said Rupert sullenly. "'The fate of the bill is settled to-day week, when you make your big speech. You must speak against it. Confess frankly you are mistaken. It will be a close thing, anyhow. Your influence will turn the scale.' "'It will ruin me politically.' "'You will marry Marjorie Hale and be rich. No rich man is ever ruined politically, or socially.' She patted his hand gently. "'You'll do it?' He got up slowly. "'You'll see next week,' he said. It is not meet that we should watch the unhappy Rupert through the long-drawn hours of the night, as he wrestled with the terrible problem. A moment's sudden madness on that May afternoon had brought him to the crossroads. On the one hand, reputation, wealth, the girl that he loved. On the other, his own honour and, so at least he had said several times on the platform, the safety of England. He rose in the morning, weary, but with his mind made up. The bill should go through. Rupert Meryton was a speaker of a not unusual type. Although he provided the opinions himself, he always depended upon his secretary for the arguments with which to support them, and the actual words in which to give them being. But on this occasion he felt that a special effort was required of him. He would show Lady Marchpane that the blackmail of yesterday had only roused him to a still greater effort on behalf of his country. He would write his own speech. On the fateful night the house was crowded. It seemed that all the guests at Lady Marchpane's a week before were in the distinguished strangers' gallery or behind the ladies' grill. From the press gallery our special word-painter looked down upon the statesman beneath him, his eagle eye ready to detect on the moment the angry flush, the wince, or the sudden paling of enemy, the grim smile, or the lofty calm of friend. The Right Honourable Rupert Meryton, terrifatical member for Cricklewood East, rose to his feet amidst cheers. "'Mr. Speaker,' he said, "'I rise, um, to-night, sir, um, to, um, so much of his speech I may give, but urgent state reasons compel me to withhold the rest. Were it ever known with which bill the secret history that I have disclosed concerns itself, the great powers in an instant would be at each other's throats. But though I may not disclose the speech, I can tell of its effect on the house. And its effect was curious. It was, in fact, the exact opposite of what Rupert Meryton, that promising undersecretary, had intended. It was the first speech that he had ever prepared himself. Then Rupert there was no more dignified figure in the House of Commons. His honour was proof, as we have seen, against the most insidious temptations. Yet, since one man cannot have all the virtues, he was distinctly stupid. It would have been a hopeless speech anyhow, but to make matters worse, he had, in the most important part of it, attempted irony, and at the beginning of the ironical passage even the terrifatical word-painters had to confess that it was their own stalwarts who suddenly paled. As Lady Marchpane had said, it was bound to be a close thing. The liberatives and the unionists, of course, were solid against the bill, but there was also something of a cave in the terrifatical party. It was bound to be a close thing, and Rupert's speech just made the difference. When he sat down, the waverers and doubters had made up their minds. The bill was defeated. That the Terrafaticals should resign was natural. Perhaps it was equally natural that Rupert's secretary should resign, too. He said that his reputation would be gone if Rupert made any more speeches on his own, and that he wasn't going to risk it. Without his secretary, Rupert was lost at the general election which followed. 
Fortunately, he had a grateful friend in Lady Marchpane. She exerted her influence with the liberatives, and got him an appointment as governor of the Stickjaw Islands. Here, with his beautiful and rich wife, Sir Rupert Meryton maintains a regal estate, and upon his name no breath of scandal rests. Indeed, his only trouble so far has been with the stick-jaw language, a difficult language, but one which, perhaps fortunately, does not lend itself to irony. THE MAGNET It was in October 19-aught-aught that the word zinc first began to be heard in financial circles. City men pushing their dominoes regretfully away, and murmuring zinc in apologetic tones, were back in their offices by three o'clock, forgetting in their haste to leave the usual tuppence under the cup for the waitress. Clubmen, glancing at the tape on their way to the smoking-room, said to their neighbours, "'Zinc's moved a point, I see,' before covering themselves up with the times. In the trains, returning husbands asked each other loudly, "'What's all this about zinc?' all save the very innocent ones who whispered, "'I say, what is zinc exactly?' The music-halls took it up. No sooner had the word zinc left the lips of an acknowledged comedian than the house was in roars of laughter. The furore at the collodium when Octavius Octo, in his world-famous part of the landlady of a boarding-house, remarked, "'I know why my old man's so late. He's buying zinc,' is still remembered in the bars round Piccadilly." To explain it properly, it will be necessary, my readers will be alarmed to hear, to go back some thirty years. This, as a simple calculation shows, takes us to June 18-0. It was in June 18-0 that Felix Moses, a stout young man of attractive appearance, if you care for that style, took his courage in both hands, and told Phyllida Sloan that he was worth ten thousand a year, and was changing his name to Mountenay. Miss Sloane, seeing that it was the beginning of a proposal, said hastily that she was changing hers to Abraham. "'You're marrying Leo Abraham?' asked Felix in amazement. "'Ah!' Oh. A gust of jealousy swept over him. He licked his lips. There was a dangerous look in his eyes, a look that was destined in after-days to make emperors and rival financiers quail. "'Ah!' he said softly. "'Leo Abraham! I shall not forget!' and now it will be necessary, my readers will be relieved to learn, to jump forward some thirty years. This obviously takes us to September 19-0. Let us on this fine September morning take a peep into number ought Throgneedle Street, E.C., and see how the business of the mother city is carried on. On the fourth floor we come to the sanctum of the great man himself. Mr. Felix Mountenay, no admittance, is painted upon the outer door. It is a name which is known and feared all over Europe. Mr. Mountenay's private detective stands on one side of the door. On the other side is Mr. Mountenay's private wolfhound. Murmuring the word press, however, we pass hastily through, and find ourselves before Mr. Mountenay himself. Mr. Mountenay is at work. Let us watch him through a typical five minutes. For a moment he stands meditating in the middle of the room. Kings are tottering on their thrones. Empires hang upon his nod. What will he decide? Suddenly he blows a cloud of smoke from his cigar and rushes to the telephone. Hello, is that you, Jones? What are Margarine Preffs at? What? No, Margarine Preffs, idiot! Ah, then sell. Keep on selling till I tell you to stop. Yes. He hangs up the receiver. For two minutes he paces the room, smoking rapidly. He stops a moment but it is only to remove his cigar-band, which is in danger of burning. Then he resumes his pacings. 
another minute goes rapidly by. He rushes to the telephone again. Hello, is that you, Jones? What are Margarine Prefs down to now? Ah, then buy. Keep on buying. Yes. He hangs up the receiver. By this masterstroke he has made a quarter of a million. It may seem to you or me an easy way of doing it. Ah, but what, we must ask ourselves, of the great brain that conceived the idea, the foresight which told the exact moment when to put it into action, the cool courage which seized the moment, what of the grasp of affairs, the knowledge of men? Ah, can we grudge it him that he earns a quarter of a million more quickly than we do? Yet Mr. Felix Mountenay is not happy. When we have brought off a coup for a hundred thousand even, we smile gaily. Mr. Mountenay did not smile. Fiercely he bit another inch off his cigar, and muttered to himself. The words were, Leo Abraham, wait! This is positively the last row of dots. Let us take advantage of them to jump forward another month. It was October 1st, 19-aught-aught. If that was a Sunday, then it was October 2nd. Anyhow, it was October. Mr. Felix Mountenay was sleeping in his office. For once that iron brain relaxed. He had made a little over three million in the last month, and the strain was too much for him. But a knock at the door restored him instantly to his own cool self. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said his secretary, "'but somebody is selling zinc.' The word zinc touched a chord in Mr. Mountenay's brain, which had lain dormant for years. Zinc! Why did zinc remind him of Leo Abraham? "'Fetch the Encyclopedia Britannica! Quick!' he cried. The secretary, a man of Herculean build, returned with some of it. With the luck which proverbially attends rich men, Mr. Mountenay picked up the Z volume at once. As he read the zinc article, it all came back to him. Leo Abraham had owned an empty zinc mine. Was his enemy in his clutches at last? Bye, he said briefly. In a fortnight the secretary had returned. Well, said Mr. Mountenay, have you bought all the zinc there is? Yes, sir, said the secretary, and a lot that there isn't, he added. Good. He paused a moment. When Mr. Leo Abraham calls, he added grimly, show him up at once. It was a month later that a haggard man climbed the stairs of number Ott, Throgneedle Street, and was shown into Mr. Mountenay's room. Well, said the financier softly, what can I do for you? I want some zinc, said Leo Abergavenny. Zinc, said Mr. Mountenay with a smile, is a million pounds a ton or an acre, or a gallon, or however you prefer to buy it," he added humorously. Leo went white. "'You wish to ruin me?' "'I do. A promise I made to your wife some years ago.' "'My wife?' cried Leo. "'What do you mean? I'm not married.' It was Mr. Mountenay's turn to go white. He went it. "'Not married? But Miss Sloane!' Mr. Leo Abergavenny sat down and mopped his face. "'I don't know what you mean,' he said. "'I asked Miss Sloane to marry me and told her I was changing my name to Abergavenny, and she said that she was changing hers to Moses. Naturally, I thought, "'Stop!' cried Mr. Mountenay. He sat down heavily. Something seemed to have gone out of his life. In a moment the world was empty. He looked up at his old rival and forced a laugh. <laughs> "'Well, well,' he said, "'she deceived us both. Let us drink to our lucky escape.' He rang the bell. "'And then,' he said in a purring voice, "'we can have a little chat about zinc. After all, business is still business.'" THE DOCTOR 
his slippered feet stretched out luxuriously to the fire dr venables of mudford lay back in his armchair and gave himself up to the delights of his flor di caballo number two a box of which had been presented to him by an apparently grateful patient it had been a busy day he had prescribed more than half a dozen hot milk puddings and a dozen changes of air he had promised a score of times to look in again to-morrow and the widow nixie had told him yet again but at greater length than before her private opinion of doctors sometimes gordon venables wondered whether it was only for this that he had been the most notable student of his year at st bartholomew's his brilliance indeed had caused something of a sensation in medical circles and a remarkable career had been prophesied for him it was venables who had broken up one suffrage meeting after another by throwing white mice at the women on the platform who day after day had paraded london dressed in the costume of a brown dog until arrested for biting an anti-vivisector in the leg no wonder that all the prizes of the profession were announced to be within his grasp and that when he buried himself in the little country town of mudford he was thought to have thrown away recklessly opportunities such as were granted to few he had been in mudford for five years now an occasional paper in the lancet on the recurrence of anthrophilomelitis in earthworms kept him in touch with modern medical thought but he could not help feeling that to some extent his powers were rusting in mudford as the years went on his chance of harley street dwindled come in he said in answer to a knock at the door the housekeeper's head appeared there's been an accident sir she gasped gentlemen run over he snatched up his stethoscope and without even waiting to inquire where the accident was hurried into the night something whispered to him that his chance had come after a quarter of an hour he stopped a small boy hello johnny he said breathlessly where's the accident the boy looked at him with open mouth for some moments then he had an idea why it's a doctor he said dr venables pushed him over and ran on it was in the high street that the accident had happened lord lair an eccentric old gentleman who sometimes walked when he might have driven had while dodging a motor-car been run into by a child's hoop he lay now on the pavement surrounded by a large and interested crowd look out shouted somebody from the outskirts here comes doctor dr venables pushed his way through to his patient his long search for the scene of the accident had exhausted him bodily but his mind was as clear as ever stand back there he said in an authoritative voice then taking out his stethoscope he made a rapid examination of his patient incised wound in the tibia he murmured to himself slight abrasion of the patella and contusion of the left ankle the injuries are serious but not necessarily mortal who is he the butcher who had been sitting on the head of the fallen man got up and disclosed the features of lord lair dr venables staggered back his lordship he cried he is a patient of dr scott's i have attended the client of another practitioner professionally i am ruined lord lair who was now breathing more easily opened his eyes take me home he groaned dr venable's situation was a terrible one medical etiquette demanded his immediate retirement from the case but the promptings of humanity and the thought of his client's important position in the world were too strong for him throwing his scruples to the winds he assisted the aged peer on to a hastily improvised stretcher and accompanied him to the hall his lordship once in bed the doctor examined him again it was obvious immediately that there was only one hope of saving the patient's life. An injection of anthrophilomelitis must be given without loss of time. Dr. Venables took off his coat and rolled up his sleeves. 
He never travelled without a small bottle of this serum in his waistcoat pocket, a serum which, as my readers know, is prepared from the earthworm, in whose body, fortunately, large deposits of anthrophilomolitis are continually found. With help from a footman in holding down the patient, the injection was made. In less than a year Lord Lair was restored to health. Dr. Gordon Venable's case came before the British Medical Council early in October. The counts in the indictment were two. The first was that, on the 17th of June last, Dr. Gordon Venables did feloniously and with malice aforethought commit the disgusting and infamous crime of attending professionally the client of another practitioner. The second was that, in the course of rendering professional services to the said client, Dr. Venables did knowingly and wittingly employ the assistance of one who was not a properly registered medical man, to wit Thomas Boiling, footman, therefore showing himself to be a scurvy fellow of infamous morals. Dr. Venables decided to apologize. He also decided to send in an account to Lord Lair for two hundred and fifty guineas. He justified this to himself mainly on the ground that, according to a letter in that week's Lancet, the supply of anthrophilomolitis in earthworms was suddenly giving out, and that it was necessary to recoup himself for the generous quantity he had injected into Lord Lair. Naturally, also, he felt that his lordship, as the author of the whole trouble, owed him something. The counsel, in consideration of his apology, dismissed the first count. On the second count, however, they struck him off the register. It was a terrible position for a young doctor to be in, but Gordon Venables faced it like a man. With Lord Lair's fee in his pocket, he came to town and took a house in Harley Street. When he had paid the first quarter's rent and the first instalment on the hired furniture, he had fifty pounds left. Ten pounds he spent on embossed stationery. Forty pounds he spent on postage stamps. For the next three months no journal was complete without a letter from 999 Harley Street, signed Gordon Venables, in which the iniquity of his treatment by the British Medical Council was dwelt upon with the fervour of a man who knew his subject thoroughly. No such letter was complete without a side reference to anthrophilomolitis, as found, happily, in earthworms, and the anthrophilomolitis treatment, as recommended by peers. Six months previously the name of Venables had been utterly unknown to the man in the street. In three months' time it was better known even than XX's, the well-known XX. One half of London said he was an infamous quack. The other half of London said he was a martyr genius. Both halves agreed that, after all, one might as well try this new what-you-may-call-it treatment, just to see if there was anything in it, don't you know. It was only last week that Mr. Venables made an excellent speech against the super-tax. End of chapter 9, part 1